See, Jen is a professional when it comes to this recording. Yeah, I have I have no advice. I'm an actor, so I have nothing. <laughs> so regular listeners to this show, they're going to know that I don't normally do an intro. I just I don't do an intro because we normally just get straight down to business. But this week, oh man, it just most definitely calls for a very special introduction because this is a special episode. Because this week, live from New York is Jen Simmons, who's the incredible host of the Web Ahead podcast. How are you? And we're going to get to talk today about one of our favorite topics, which is Mad Men. And we're joined by, ah, I can't believe that I'm about to say this. We're joined by a very special guest because he's the man who plays Mad Men's other, some might say the better, creative director, Lou Avery. He brings him to life, actor and comedian, <laughs> Alan Havey. Welcome to Unfinished Business. I can't believe I'm saying this. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk today. I can't tell you how excited we've been knowing you, you, you're going to be on the show this week. Well, I'm excited too. It, uh, you know, it ended a couple of weeks ago, the show, and uh, I've done a few uh, interviews, but I'm excited to be on the air with you. Ah, oh, fantastic. Thank you. And I suppose I should warn the listeners out there that over the next hour, we're going to be talking, of course, about Mad Men and the final season and last week's finale, because it aired, uh, I think, late last week in the UK. We saw the last episode. So if people haven't uh-huh. seen Don Draper fall out of mechanic Ericsson window yet, man, there's going to be some spoilers. Yes. You might want to switch off. And come back after you've watched the last show. So I want to talk about three things today, if we can fit them in, in the time that we've got. I want to talk about Lou, how can we not, and people's reactions to him. I'd like to run over parts of the final season in general and particular where it left certain characters including Lou then I think we should talk about the finale itself and where it left Don and if we can find the time maybe talk about that commercial sounds good to me so I've got to ask because I don't normally do kind of actor interviews on this podcast but what was it that attracted you to Lou in the first place well i since season one, episode one, I've wanted to do this show. Uh, and I told my managers, just get me in the door. It's all just get me in the door. And uh, I auditioned in season two for a doctor, a doctor that interviews Peggy after she has a baby. And thank God I did not get that part. Because if I had, I wouldn't have come back as Lou. So season six, I interviewed for this part. I had no idea where it was going. I, I thought it was a one episode shot and I went in and I got it and shot it in January of 2013. And I thought that was it. I was happy. You know, I go, great. I got on my favorite show. Uh, I gave uh, Draper and Sterling a hard time at the airport and that was fantastic. And then, but a couple months later, I hear from my manager, they want you back to do another scene. So that was the final episode of season six when I come out of the elevator with Duck. And I tell, you know, I smile at Draper, good morning, going down. And that was it. No idea I was going to come back in season seven and replacing Don until about 10 days before they shot. My manager called me. She said, uh, they want to see you again. They want to make sure you can handle the scenes, longer scenes. So it was, it was, it was a re-audition almost. He just wanted to make sure. So I went back in with uh, Matt Weiner and Scott Hornbacker and Tom Smuts, and and I got in my car, and I'm driving on the freeway. My manager called me and said, you got the part. 
So I had no idea where it was going. And I think when I first signed on for season seven, Matt mentioned to my manager three to five episodes, and it wound up being uh, nine more. I, I talked to Matt Weiner before we started shooting. I go, so this guy's a jerk, right? He goes, no, no, no. And he gave me the best direction I've ever gotten. He goes, you're the nicest guy in the world. Everybody loves Lou. You just do your thing. And so I really didn't look at him as a pain in the ass. I just looked at him as like a guy who came into this agency. Uh, he's old school. And he's going to do things his way. And he heard about Don Draper. And, you know, he heard about, in, by the time I got to Lou, uh, Don Draper had called Hershey a whorehouse. Um, so he knew that uh, things weren't going well and he was coming in to save the day. So that's the way I looked at Lou. I think the first time we saw Lou was at the airport. He was off on a flight up to Detroit to pitch for Chevy because he was still working at Dancer Fitzgerald Sample. But he was. He was an asshole. Was it they just lost Vix? He, was, he said, does anyone have a cough drop? Because I know you don't. Right. I mean, was that really necessary? <laughs> well, uh, Lou's, you know, ad guys are that way. And he had heard about the encounter in the whorehouse. And, and he knew they had lost Vix. They, they didn't know yet. And so that was his way of giving them a hard time. And like Ted Shaw did in the restaurant uh, with Don Draper a couple seasons back, that's what ad guys do. They give each other a hard time. So you were a big fan of the show before you were on it. Huge fan. From episode one. Loved the show. Wanted to get on the show. And uh, audition, I, I uh, mentioned this earlier in episode uh, season two, I was a doctor that interviewed Peggy, and it was a good audition. And Matt Weiner is really good with actors. He'll have you do it, do it again. He'll give you a little direction. And I didn't get that part, thank God. And then season six came along, and I got in the room and got that uh, got that part. But I wasn't told, hey, this is going to turn into something. Uh, they they really don't let actors know what's what's coming up until the night before the table read. So you you really don't have an idea. It's kind of fun that way. And of course, we're not supposed to talk about it uh, or put it on social media. And that was great because I didn't have to tell anybody. Therefore, I didn't talk about it. So it kind of contains your energy. So I, I think it's really key for actors not to talk about what they're doing. At least it was for me. What was the audience's reaction to Lou? I mean, I read somewhere that you had, I mean, is hate mail too strong? You got some negative comments or Lou got some negative comments. Was that true? Oh yeah. On the chat rooms, not to me personally online, but, uh, in, in all the uh, the comments and on many websites, it was like Lou, you know, should go out the window. They should take a stapler and shove it up Lou's bum. I mean, <laughs> it was it was pretty nasty. And out in public, I got you know uh, several people who came up to me and said, "Why don't you leave Don Draper alone?" Like it like it was a real thing. It's like reminded me of soap opera stars, you know, in the seventies. Uh, women would approach him, why don't you leave that man? He's cheating on you, that kind of thing. And I'm a comedian, so I'd go up in a club, I'd be introduced, and someone would yell out, leave Don Draper alone, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, for the most part, people on the street were very nice. It's funny because I, I was thinking about this earlier, um, getting ready to do this, and I thought, you know, a lot of the behavior of the characters on Mad Men, especially the men at the advertising agencies, is is historical. You, thankfully we don't have to put up with a lot of that kind of behavior now the sexual harassment the drinking the arrogance things we feel the echoes of that but in many ways those things have changed and it feels like lou in a way is 
at least from my point of view, it felt like he's much more of a, like we've had him as a boss. Many of the people watching the show, we've had that boss. He seems like a much more uh, modern, normal asshole <laughs> in the way that, you know, someone who you're trying to do good work and maybe they don't really kind of care and you're doing something amazing and they didn't notice. And then they ask you to do something that's sort of just all that kind of nuance. It's much more nuanced and much more. And I wonder if people kind of had a stronger reaction in some ways and didn't like him because it felt more personal, closer to what work is like in the 21st century, what it's like now. Well, I think the main thing was I replaced on Draper mm-hmm. and I'm in this atmosphere now. And this is a stodgy old guy compared to Don, you know, Don did have his problems, but, uh, Lou uh, certainly brought an old school style into the office in 1969. I mean, he was uh, mm. f- 59 years old, uh, you know, about 17 years older than Draper. So they wanted, I think after, you know, Sterling Cooper dealt with Draper and his all his BS, they just wanted a, kind of a safe middle of the road guy in that agency. Well, I want to talk about Lou's way of doing business in a minute but i can't i can't not talk about scouts honor honestly can we (laughs) which i mean for those people that may have not noticed this in the show he's a monkey he's a monkey character that lou created and i actually did some freeze frame stuff when i was looking at the show making some notes for this and uh this is scout he can take anything but an order i think is the tagline for this cartoon and he looks like fun he looks like a fun character yeah, I, I think probably Lou is working on that since he was in World War II for Stars and Stripes, you know. Uh, and this is his dream little character. And once uh, another agency guy got Underdog uh, going, he, uh, Lou felt, "Hey, I can create this, and this is this is really my dream." You know, advertising's great, but you know we all have our pipe dreams. And Lou worked on this and got it, and uh, really made him happy. Do you still have the cartoon? Yeah, I do. Somewhere. We've got it tucked away. They let you keep the Scouts on a cartoon? No, I stole it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk for a minute about Lou's creative director approach, if we can. Because the guy, he compared himself to Bob Dylan at one point. Well, I think he was was trying to put down Stan. Because Dylan... Uh, had written, you know, blowing in the wind at, at twenty, and he looked at Stan. Look where, look where Dylan is. Look where you are, because Stan had just put down uh, Lou's uh, character. He just found out about it in the bathroom, so he was really pissed off, and that was his way of taking his anger out at Stan in front of everyone. And he made everybody stay late, so Lou got very petty. Well, he says something in that particular meeting. There's, he's arguing with Peggy. I think about this creative strategy for Accutron. I think this is way back in like episode one. This of is the season uh, seven. Scouts Honor didn't come until episode three or four. Yeah. Uh, episode one, Accutron is accurate. That's the one. She had just heard uh, Joel Murray's pitch from Don about uh, Accutron's a conversation piece, which but is back- a much better tagline and concept, let's be honest. You didn't pick an angle for Accutron? Was that today? Sure I did. Don, what did I say? Just in time to be on time. That wasn't one of the choices. I think that was a digression. How about Accutron is accurate? That was one of the choices. I'm positive. It's time for a conversation. 
I think that one's more finished. And I think you're putting me in a position of saying, I don't care what you think. Why would you put something in front of me that you don't want me to pick? Because you told me to give you two ideas. You apparently only gave me one. Last week I gave you 30 choices and you told me to bring two. That's the way we do it. As, because it's coming from Peggy, you know, and she got it from uh, Joel, Joel's character who got it from Don Draper. But actually, back in the day, Accutron is Accurate was the tagline in the actual ad back in 69. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, actually, I did of- Google. Um, because I don't, you can only get Accutrons on eBay today. I don't think you can actually buy Accutron watches. But when Matt called me and said, I don't know why everybody hates you, Accutron is accurate, was the uh, campaign back in the day. And, again, I just told Matt, I said, you know, it doesn't matter what Lou comes up with. People aren't going to like it. They've invested emotionally in these other characters. And Lou's just, uh, he's, you know, he's just a stick in the mud. Well, he says something in that particular meeting, which I think resonates with a lot of people who are in our industry. Because, you know, we we design things for clients. That tends to be what what I do for a living, um, you know, five days out of seven. And quite often a client will say, yeah, we'd like three concepts. You know, we'd like three designs. And, you know, particularly when prospective clients are coming to the agency, they're saying, you know, in our brief, we, you know, we'd like three concepts and then we'll choose one. And Lou said, um, why would you put something in front of me that you don't want me to pick? And right. that's just I've used that because it's absolutely true. I mean, if, if, a, if you design one thing that you really have your heart and soul in and then you've got to make up the numbers with two more, you know, you're always going to pour more of your efforts into the thing you think is the right solution for the job. Um, and I've used that. That is a, a pearl of Lou wisdom that I've used in the real world with, with clients. Well, the, the writers did their research on this and they they know their stuff i to me it just it came to me the night before the table read and then i just delivered the lines and uh i uh i didn't ask after that first little talk with matt i did not ask what's my motivation here what am i trying to say it was all very clear in the writing well it sounds as if you had a really good time it was a dream come true after like three episodes, Matt came up to me and said, how's it going? And I said, honestly, the reality is better than the dream. And that rarely happens in this business where, you know, you watch a project or a show or whatever and you want to get on it. And then you get on it and, you know, some of it's great, but some of it's a pain in the butt. It's, this was a dream come true. I was happy and joyous for five, six months. And I've, I don't think that's ever happened in my life where I've been so satisfied. Uh, with a job. Watching the show, it seems like it's just so well written and so well shot. Um, And I think for any of us working with a team who can work at that level and that kind of quality of work is always a dream. It's always something that we're trying to achieve. Um, What was it like to, I don't know, have scripts this great and and watch a camera crew doing their work that is, uh, it just felt like maybe they were Either there was a lot of exploration and a lot of decisions being made and a lot of ideas being tried until they found the really solid ideas, or were, was everybody just that amazing that they were just able to knock it out of the park? Well, I wasn't in the writer's room, so I'm sure there was a lot of tension there and a lot of decision-making there. But once the actor walks on the set, they've got it all down. 
They know exactly what they're doing, where they're going. I've, ne- I've and I've worked with great crews uh, in my life, but never as smooth as this. I spent very little time in my dressing room or my trailer. It was you get on, and they knew what they were doing, and it was just it was an actor's dream. And I never, I never said, "Well, why is the camera over there? Where's my shot?" I I had watched the show for five and a half seasons, and I knew that they knew exactly what they were doing. So there was no tension. There was no questions. It was just great. Got it. Uh, you know, and if I got off the mark a little bit, the director would come over and talk to me. Fantastic. I, I, there was no, no obstacles in my head. It was so smooth and so easy in, in a way because I was like walking into this perfectly oiled machine. And uh, it was just – it was fantastic. I think the writing has been consistently good right the way through the entire seven seasons. But this last season seven, I think, just took it to a completely different level. Um, and the way in which they managed to um, develop those characters some more and then wrap things up for everybody pretty much. Uh, one way or the, the other in this last season, I think was just an incredible piece of writing. What we could do, I think, is if we just talk about this sort of final season in general um, and where it left some of our kind of favorite characters. Do you do you have, apart from Lou, do you have a favorite character? Well, I've always been, I've related well to Peggy, you know, because I was a Catholic growing up in Miami and I went to New York to pursue a dream of acting and comedy. And I think Peggy's character, you know, was in Brooklyn. She was a very conservative uh, Catholic family, and she crossed the Brooklyn Bridge, which back in those days was like, you know, going 10,000 miles into a new land. So I really enjoyed her arc. And, of course, I liked Roger Sterling. There wasn't a character I didn't like uh, except for Pete. Pete got on my nerves a little bit. Um, But uh, I really related more to Peggy. And, of course, I I didn't want Don to have a happy ending, but I – just wanted him to see the light at the end of the tunnel by the time the show finished, and I think he did. I think from a strong female character perspective, it was very interesting that she felt confident enough to turn down Jones' offer of a partnership to stay at McCann's. Absolutely, and I think she really respected Joan. And uh, I was, you know, I'm, I'm glad she stayed there because she's an ad person. That's who she is, died in the wall. That's who she became, and same thing with Draper. He's meditating on a mountaintop. He gets a great idea. It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. You're the person you are. Well, let's talk about that final shot, (laughs) final close in a minute, if we could. Where do you stand on Peggy Olsen, Jen? Um, I love the character. I mean, I really loved all these characters. Uh, And one thing I liked a lot was watching Joan and Peggy – not really get along for most of the series and, you know, starts out where Joan is helping Peggy and, and has a relationship with her that she has with all these girls in the office. Um, and, but through, you know, they were always fighting, right? You, you, you'd have this moment where you'd think, oh, they're going to both realize that they're in the same situation with all these men in the office and they're going to band together and they're going to make a change. They're going to help each other. And that never happens. They keep ending up um, sort of, not being great allies. 
even as they like each other and even as they respect each other. And I just think that's so very realistic. I think it's very much truer to how real life works. Uh, all the way down to the end where Peggy, where Joan says, you know, finally she's like, well, let me, I'll invite Peggy to be my partner, which was a little bit out of characteristic, I think a bit, because they weren't necessarily that close a lot of the time. Uh, and then Peggy just turns her down. Again, not banding together. Um, well, I think Joan told Peggy uh, several seasons ago, I never wanted your job. This is not what I want to do. But when we saw Joan read scripts uh, for the networks, when she was working media with uh, Harry, she was really good at that. And I think she was very disappointed when she didn't get that job permanently. Um, so I think she got a taste of uh, – she realized she was very competent and good at it and good with the clients. And mm -hmm. then, boom, back to being the office manager. So it was nice the way their careers would circle and they bump heads sometimes and get along better the other times. It was, it was so beautifully laid out. Yeah. I mean, the way that they concluded both of those very different but still very strong female characters I thought was was incredibly good because, you know, we, I think we've seen the, the worst and the best when it comes to, um, you know, sexism and potentially overcoming it, particularly in this last season when, uh, when Joan and Peggy both have these experiences at McCann. Um, I wonder how McCann Erickson feel about being portrayed in quite this way. Yeah, that would be interesting. No, I have a friend who worked at McCann until just recently. Um, but I don't know. She was like, she just didn't even watch the show. She's like, I can't watch it. It's too realistic. It's awful. Where do you stand on the Peggy and Stan rom-com ending? Was that necessary? I mean, I feel like it's, it might be a little bit of a little bit of a too tied up in a bow, you know. I can't imagine how hard it must be to write an ending of a series. So, I, you know, when am I going to sit here and act like I have a better ending? No. I mean, I think in some ways it's, you know, it's nice to see or whatever. It's good to see that, yeah, well, Peggy can have a relationship at home and find more balance between work and home life and not just be all about work for the rest of her life. I don't know. I thought the sexual tension they had over the years, and it was definitely there and their work, I, I, I thought it wrapped up nicely. And it might have been a little rom-com, but I've, you know, this show – 92 episodes, and it maybe gets a little corny in one. No big deal to me. Right, right. So what about Betty, which was, I think, one of the biggest surprise endings? I, I didn't see uh, Betty's in what's coming. No, no I, I don't think anybody did. And, uh, boy, a wasp knows how to die. I mean, she, you know, was very stoic about it. She knew how she wanted to go out. I, I thought it was really well handled. And I think that's January Jones' best work of uh, – the entire uh, season, the entire, you know, run of all these years. So I thought it was uh, really well done. I know you didn't get to share any scenes with her, but did you get to run into her on set at any point? Yeah, I, I listen, I hung out with all the actors there. They were very gracious, very inclusive. Uh, you know, and there was plenty of parties and uh, I got I wanted to work with her. But I'm really glad I got to work with Kiernan, Sally. Oh, she's an amazing young actress. Yeah, and I thought, well, maybe she'll come into Don's office in the next week. That was the episode. So that's, <laughs> the, only, that's the only thing I really uh, predicted and hoped would happen. But let me, you know, people ask me how beautiful are these women. I've seen them all early in the morning without makeup, hair and rollers, wearing robes, and they're gorgeous. And the men? Are the men gorgeous too? The men are very handsome. 
my uh, wife and I took my wife to the Christmas party, and uh, John Hamm was still shooting, as and he was dressed as Don Draper. So I introduced him to my wife, and I disappeared. It's, it's when you're hanging around John Hamm, it's like you don't exist. <laughs> yeah, ev- yeah. Everybody looks great, and, and everyone gets along. And it was it's it's like a family, and they're very they have a great rapport. And I think the reason is I was talking to Elizabeth uh, Moss about this is they all kind of you know made it together. No one was a huge star when they walked in. So as the you know popularity of the show and they started winning Emmys and and they just you know were, they knew each other. So they all kind of came up together and they, and they appreciated it. There was no hubris. There was no ego. And I was there for a long time. I would have seen something. Uh, they were just very grateful that they had the show. Well, I think that they rounded off all of these characters incredibly well. Everybody had, apart from Betty, had a, a pretty, I would say, happy ending. Um, I really liked how they wrapped up Roger Sterling and Marie. I thought that was a <laughs> incredibly well-written and and funny exchange at the very end i mean the whole and i can't speak great french but you know the whole a bottle of champagne for my mother line was just (laughs) could not have been a better ending for that character well it was great because i was able to watch any episode i was not in i had no idea what was going on and someone said you should come down to the table reads i said no i would i'm i'm you know mainly a fan of the show so that was a surprise to me how everything turned out, I had no idea. So that was fun. Well, we cannot leave this conversation, this segment, without talking about Lou's exit because it has to be one of the best Lou moments, I think, from the entire season. And I've actually got the audio. I'm not going to play it to you now because you've obviously heard it a million times, but I'm going to cut it into the podcast. Hello, Lou. Don, I think we need to have a conversation. Look, we just found out. I told Dee not to say anything. But good, you know. I'm moving next week. When did they tell you? A couple weeks ago. I thought about it for 10 seconds and I thought, so what if it's Tokyo? It's my lifelong dream. They have an office in Tokyo? They only have an office in Tokyo. What are you talking about? Tatsunoko Productions. They're making Scout's Honor into a cartoon. What'd you think I was talking about? It doesn't matter. They made Speed Racer, Don. I got a $15,000 advance. Obviously, my mind's made up. Obviously. I wish I could see the look on your face. I bet you're not laughing anymore, are you? No, Lou, I'm not. Well, sayonara, my friend. Enjoy the rest of your miserable life. Who were you talking to? Who was actually on the other end of the phone when you shot that scene? There was no one on the phone, but uh, John Hamm was on the other side of the wall doing the lines. Oh, uh, okay. The actors are there for the other actors when they're on the phone. And when he shot his part, I was behind the cameras reading the lines. So we were in the room. But that uh, when I got the, the script and saw my exit, I couldn't have been happier. And... Uh, at the end of the table read, after I read that line, I, I turned the script over, slammed it down on the table, folded my hands on it, and the whole cast broke into laughter and applause. And it was just uh, one of the perfect moments in my career I've ever had. 
I absolutely loved that scene. Um, I did Google. We're back to the monkey again. Every, th- every episode of this podcast has to be about apes in some way. Regular listeners will know. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm the second biggest Planet of the Apes fan in the UK. So um, we do talk about Planet of the Apes quite a lot on this podcast. Well, I remember when it came out in Miami, I went to the theater and saw it. And, in 68? Uh, yes. I was uh, like 14 years old. And, well, uh, I, I think it was last season – um, was it, or was it the early season seven? I forget because they did the thing where they split it over two years. I've, I, I've lose track, but Don takes his son to the cinema to see Planet of the Apes twice. And he's actually sitting. The attention to detail was unbelievable because he was sitting there reading this little kind of in cinema newspaper, Planet of the Apes newspaper that they gave out in 1968. And I actually do have a copy of that newspaper. Wow. An original, yeah. You can you can pick them up on eBay for sort of you know forty fifty bucks if you can find one. They're not totally expensive. So yeah, I was like, this was the two my favorite things collided in that one episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, so I was happy about that line too. Well, I did Google Scouts Honor to see if it was ever a thing, and it wasn't. No, no, it's totally made up. Uh, I, I I think I know one of the writers that did it, but I can't mention it. Speed Racer, though, that he mentions, and that was a real thing. And so was Taxonoco Productions because they, they didn't make Scouts Honor in the 70s, but they did make, wait for this, I looked this up, they did make Tamagon the Counselor, which doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound so exciting. Who no. wants to see a, ca- a cartoon about a counselor? <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's, it's just not going to have the same appeal. And they made another one, Goliath the Superfighter, which was another... Taxonoco Productions. Yeah, hmm. I always wonder how Lou would work out in Japan. Have you been? No, I've never been. But I was just, you know, wondering back in the 60s. It's the craziest place I have ever been to. My Japanese friends will testify to my complete amazement at absolutely everything in Japan. I walk around with my eyes on stalks pretty much all the time. It's, it's nuts. The place is nuts. But you ought to go. If you can get a chance to go over there, it's a fabulous country. Yeah, I, I definitely want to go. Jan, have you ever been? To Japan? No. I spent two months in China. And uh, it's just, it's, my mind was constantly blown. And there's just so many things about life that we're used to living here in the U.S. or, you know, in the U.K. seems fairly familiar when I travel to the U.K. And I get to China and just be like, I, this makes absolutely no sense. I don't. How can you build a 15-story building in three weeks? That's <laughs> What did you do? It was not here, and then you started construction, and now it's five weeks later, and it's finished? What? <laughs> it's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. Everybody should travel. I think everybody had such enormous expectations as to how Matt and the writers were going to finish off something as monumental as this i mean i know he's had a a history of this with the sopranos um and you know the ending of that is something that kind of gets endlessly talked about although i have to confess i've never seen it i've never watched a single episode of the sopranos which is not something that i should normally confess i suppose well no but that's the way television is now you'll get around to it when you do and I envy you for not having seen any of it. You should start at season one. You're in for a real treat. And any of your listeners who have not seen The Sopranos, I highly recommend it. It kind of started the big new age of television here. 
well, I, I know that I need to get around to seeing it at some point, and um, and I, I've stayed away from learning anything at all about the ending because you know I don't want to mm. spoil it. But I thought I thought that the way that they wrapped everything up was incredibly good, and you know, a real kind of masterpiece of storytelling. Was there anything in particular, Jen, that you that sort of you know stuck out for you? Well, I I think um, I mean the challenge of it in the and the just the amazing work is uh, it felt not only did we, the audience want the show to wrap up the character lines of these particular characters, but we wanted, I mean, the whole show itself is really about American culture and about the era of the, of the sixties and how things changed from the fifties to the seventies. I mean, our country changed so drastically and our culture changed so drastically. So it felt like in a way, the folks running the show not only had to tell us what's going to happen to Sally and Don, but also tell us what's going to happen to the United States. What's happening to, you know, wh- how does this story end? Where does where do things go? And it, I think that probably made it even uh, harder. Some it just feels even more monumental because it's not just about these individual people. Um, and and somehow it, it, whatever happened worked in that it. Gave us a long runway, I think, because of the timing, just the season seven speeding up um, very quickly and jumping through much longer distances of time from episode to episode, just made um, gave us a little ramp to sort of feel like, okay, I can see now where each of these people are going to go for the next ten years, and I can kind of feel satisfied about that. There were some characters that we never did get to see the end of, which I. Um disappointed i want to know what sally's friend how sally's friend got on in vietnam um Um, we never found out what happened to him and the school teacher from i think it was season three yes um did was she still in don's car uh you know (laughs) that when when he got out of the car and went in and his wife confronts him betty confronts him my stomach was in a knot and I don't think it loosened till about three or four days later. Uh, that was such a tense scene. I, you know, the only character I would like to have seen come back or maybe encounter was Sal. Uh, yes. What happened I, to him? We, I don't think we ever knew. No. Uh, no. Uh, no one. I, I suppose he went on, uh, probably got divorced and came out and became a good art director. Uh, once he confronted his sexuality and, and, you know, I mean, that's hopeful, that's hopeful thinking on my part, but uh, that's the only character I'm really curious about. Everybody else I think is going to be fine. I mean, the way that they handled those issues, um, you know, sexism, I suppose, roles of, um, I was going to say minorities, but in particular, you know, women and, uh, people of color. Even right up until the very end when Dawn um, isn't going to McCann's because it's it's not, you know, not everywhere is, is a welcoming place, I think, is the line. Something like well, that. Well, th- that was Shirley. Oh, Shirley. Yeah, right. I, Dawn just kind of went away. I don't know what happened to Dawn. Uh, hmm. Maybe I missed something. but Or maybe the actress got another part and couldn't do it. Jenna, is there a character that you wish would have come back that you didn't see? Uh, I don't. Uh, there might be, but I don't. I can't think of one. Did you think of a, another ending? Either one of you? Did you? Did you hope? Hey, maybe this will happen or that'll happen. Um, no, not in particular. I was, I was sad to see the agency go. 
and um, we'll talk about the, the the season finale in a minute, I suppose. But um, I was sad to see the actual agency itself go almost more than I was sad to see some of the back of some of the characters. I don't know. I've always got a a soft spot for for buildings <laughs> and this was the thing this was this was a period of consolidation in the advertising industry in manhattan at that point so it was very much true to the history of the industry um but i wish that there could have been something less left of scp um but of course there wasn't and there never would be uh, the dedication of mike nichols at the beginning of the second part of season seven and the uh uh, a little homages to his work, especially with uh, Peggy skating through the empty offices while Roger plays the organ. That's uh, right out of carnal knowledge. Um, yeah, I don't think a lot of people pick that up. And then Don going down uh, in the airport at the beginning of season seven. That was right out of The Graduate, you know, both Mike Nichols' work. So I thought that was interesting that uh, Matt had a real connection to Mike Nichols. In fact, um, in the hospital, they call um, they call Betty Mrs. Robinson, mistakenly. Right. Well, that the, that was a joke. The guys dropped her off because she was a hotter, older woman. Yeah, that's right. So that that was a fun uh, fun moment. There is a book, though. I don't know whether you might have read this, Alan, but if you haven't, you ought to pick up a, a copy. There's uh, it's by Jerry Della Femina who I think was a consultant on the show at some point. And it's called From Those Wonderful Folks Who Gave You Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I've read parts of it, but I remember when that book came out, but I haven't read it. Uh, it's such a great book. So let's talk about the, the finale then, and not just where it left everybody else, but where it left Don. Um, because we watched him throughout season seven just literally be stripped of absolutely everything um including at the very end his name and week on week it just became more and more painful in a lot of ways um and i truly did not know where this character was going to end up um and i know that there's been lots of rumors and you know lots of ideas about him falling out of a building or maybe he was the, the cartoon from the from the, the intro but I really, really, really didn't know where this thing was going to go. And to see him basically be peeled like an onion was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting people cared about the show so deeply. All these blogs and all this press or, you know, what does it mean? Did he make the commercial, the Coca-Cola commercial? Did he not? Like you said, Andy, you know, Don coming apart at the seams. It just feels like the way he was living his life, and it's such a, it's such a myth or something. It's such a, it's like a mythical hero in the world that 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 sort of the man of the fifties with the smart suit and the right haircut and successful business wise and um, everything about him is what everyone today should be aspiring to, and yet the lies and the the everything that was underneath that was actually really going on specifically for his character, of course, on this show, but, but in general, just the sort of sense of, you know, having all these other people who are contributing to the work, but you take all the credit for it. And, and that's a lot of how that mythical character gets created or, or a person who lives a life like that. Um, and, and watching it unravel and watching him just sort of us let go of that as a, as a hero and an ideal, because it's just not real. It's just not sustainable. That's not something that, 
actually is possible for any of us to be. Pretty profound. And, and I think for me at the end, then to see him, it was so fascinating to watch the show and see him, you know, basically on a yoga retreat, kind of, you know, get more in tune with who he really is. And maybe he is going to switch his name back and wow, what's going to happen. Um, and then in that final moment for kind of that whole personal journey to get turned into a Coca-Cola commercial. Spoilers, spoilers. We haven't got to that bit yet. <laughs> it's <laughs> such a stab. It was such you a stab. We can't get to the end game you don't, to you use an American term. Too far. We cannot yeah. skip ahead too far because we need to talk about that in a bit more detail in a minute. But okay, this, <laughs> but just the way that everything about Don literally fell away from him as a as a person. Um, mm. You know, obviously he he he, uh, he has a, a different relationship with his wife and, and his his ex wife and his family, where we see them, you know, making milkshakes and uh, or whatever it was that they were having and. Um, and him not being a part of that and him leaving. So that was, you know, he'd lost that part of his life. He'd obviously lost, uh, Megan. And, um, then, you know, he loses his furniture and he loses the apartment and then he loses his <laughs> business. And, every- and he, gives, he gives away his car. Yes, exactly. And then there's a stranger. I, I'm not quite sure where that it kind of fitted in really. Um, the whole encounter with the, the veterans in that small town where he had his car broken down. But I think that the point of that was to enable him to teach a lesson to the other grifter not to make the same mistakes that he did. Yeah, I, I do believe that was a reason for it. And, that scene in the veterans when a guy came up who was also a Korean veteran, there was that moment of tension. If this, you know, if Don knew this guy, he's going to be outed as not being Don Draper, being Dick Whitman. So there was that, and the car goes away. And back at the yoga retreat where he talks to Peggy on the phone and just falls down almost and just sits there, he's almost paralyzed. But then he goes to that rap session where that guy pours his heart out. And Don knows exactly how that guy feels. Well, the, the way that I was wondering about Stephanie, because th- that was another character which you know we've we've seen several times throughout the show, uh, and Draper's niece. Um, and I wondered why they were bringing her back, um, apart from to take Don to the retreat. And then it occurred to me that at the moment that Don arrives um, at her doorstep, at Anne's old house. She calls him Dick. Um, so he's lost everything by this point, you know, not just the material things, but at this point he's lost his name too. You know, he's no longer Don Draper. He literally has gone back to being Dick Whitman. And that's, that's, I think is her purpose in taking him all the way back to, um, their sort of, you know, real kind of origins. Uh, and then she does the thing which everybody else has done throughout the last few episodes, which is to reject him too. Cause she says, you know, you're not my family. What are you thinking? Um, and at that point he is just completely alone. Absolutely. And when he goes over and he hugs that guy, and by the way, that actor, Evan, I don't know his last name. He nailed it, uh, in the audition. He came in, he was the first guy in, he did it once. Everybody cried and that was it. He was cast. So that's a little, you know, behind the scenes thing. I just heard the casting directors talking about him. But when Don goes up and hugs him, because Don knows exactly what that guy is going through, I thought that was a beautiful moment. Well, 
it was very, again, it was incredibly well written. And Don has this epiphany, has this connection to Leonard, who's the character, the man in the fridge. Right. Um, <laughs> and Leonard's description of how he feels, um, echoes very much what, uh, some of the things that Don has said in previous episodes, not in this season, but in, in, uh, seasons between, I think just before he got married to Megan. Um, and he said something along the lines of, um, I'm scratching at my life trying to get into it. And this whole, uh, idea that he is behind a wall or in Leonard's case, behind a, a fridge door is absolutely classic depersonalization disorder. And I don't know, have you heard of this medical condition, this, this psychological condition? No. It comes from, a lot of the times it comes from uh, post-traumatic stress. And what happens is, is that as a, as a psyche, you, you build up barriers. So ultimately you become detached, you become depersonalized, you become distanced from yourself. Um, and, I, and it sounds like I'm speaking for personal experience, and that's exactly what I am doing. Um, so every time this stuff was being written into the characters, I was like going, yes, yes, that's how it works. That's exactly <laughs> it. And I'm sure some people would like to think that, you know, I like to emulate Don Draper in lots of other ways. But actually, I, you know, that was the thing which really connected me with that character and why I was so happy at the ending, because um, he did finally make this breakthrough. Yeah, I thought it was is essential to his journey. You know, he made this real connection, I think, for the first time with one other person. You know, and all of the other relationships that he's had have been sort of on some level or another superficial. Um, and yet he ends up actually truly understanding something about Leonard and about himself. And that i think is is the most beautiful part about don's journey is how they ended up at that particular moment because otherwise everything about him could just he could have gone through the next you know 30 40 years or whatever being the same character being you know superficial and learning nothing um and yet you know that that's not going to happen now absolutely and when he and uh, can we talk about the the final moment Yes, let's talk about the final moment. So if you, if, for those of you listening, if you haven't seen it, please turn, off, turn this off, go watch it, then come back. At that moment when that little thing goes off and he gets that idea and then we see the commercial, to me it was just like it was perfection. Because in my opinion, he went back because Peggy had mentioned Coca-Cola. He had fixed a Coca-Cola machine. Coca-Cola was all around him. And when he, it just made sense that he came up with that commercial at that moment, sit, you know, on that hillside with all those people. And I remember when that commercial came out in 71, it was huge. Like if you were in the other room, people say, hey, that commercial's on. And the song was popular and that commercial was popular. And it told me that Don Draper, for all he's discovered about himself, he's going to go back and be who he is, or who he's become is a great admin. And that's never going to go away. No matter what his psychological uh, situation is, he's an admin. Are you old enough to remember that ad, Jen? Um, on reruns, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was alive I was when it came out, but I was still young when it, when it ran the first time. Now, I can remember that, and I can also remember the New Seekers version of it from, I think, 72 which was, 
Yes, a chart topper in our hit parade. Absolutely. <laughs> Interestingly, though, because there's been this, um, and I don't quite know the best way of describing it, but there's been this sort of um, advertising reality that's run through the entire series, um, and which includes classic campaigns. I mean, it includes DDB's uh, Lemon uh, ads for um, and think small ads for Volkswagen of America. We've seen Kodak and the carousel. We've seen other, um, you know, other commercials kind of coming into the madman world. And at no point have they claimed credit for any other, uh, agency's work. Um, now McCann Ericsson did make that, uh, hilltop commercial. Yeah, you know, I'd like to buy a world of Coke. That was a McCann Erickson account. Um, but it's fairly well documented that it wasn't Don Draper. <laughs> <laughs> what? Right? That made that commercial. It was, in fact, oh, there was, no. there was a creative director on the Coca-Cola account. His name was Bill Backer. Um, and you can actually read and even see videos on YouTube. I'll put some links in the show notes, um, to him discussing how this campaign, this commercial came about. Um, so if Don was capable of making that commercial, if he was, if he was the creative genius that everybody seemed to think he was in reality, he didn't make it. Oh, you ruined, you ruined the whole show for me. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's funny. I mean, you know, of course the blog press people are just trying to put up information the day after the, the show comes out and very short timelines. But it's fascinating to hear the whole backstory of the real ad and how it really got made and, and see the, to, to see credit given to the folks, the whole team that made that ad. What I don't understand is the sort of backlash of, you know, well, how dare Matthew Weiner, how dare Mad Men, you know, uh, make people think that Don Draper made that ad and erased the people who actually made that ad. No, well, you know, some people take things too seriously, as we know. Yeah. yeah. It's a work of fiction. Yeah. You know, these aren't real people. I mean, they, you know, they're like real people and they're real, like, you know, Conrad Hilton was a real person. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just, I thought it was a perfect ending and I wasn't looking for a perfect ending. If I thought maybe Don Draper would just disappear and, and take on another identity. But I think once Betty had the cancer, Don realized that he had to go back and raise his children. There was a line that Conrad Hilton said in um, one of the previous seasons, I forget which one it was that Hilton was on, which I absolutely loved. And I haven't managed to fit this into my, I tried, people are going to think I'm weird. I try to fit madman quotes into my daily life. But he did say this thing, which I think is, again, it's extremely important, particularly in our industry where sometimes you do get people coming up that have this sort of sense of entitlement. Um, and Hilton said, I got everything that I have on my own. And it's made me immune to people who, I can't remember what he said now. They whine? Yes, that's it. They whine. Yeah. Well, they, they, they whine because they can't. I didn't take you for one of those, Don, are you? And, um, oh man, I just love that exchange. And that's one self-made man talking to another, you know, and I think that uh, Don took that to heart. Incidentally, London Fog was a real company. That was an SCMP account as well. And London Fog was interesting because I like this, these little connections. Um, 
It was London. It was in a London fog, literally in a fog in London in 1971, where, um, or on the way to London, where Bill Backer and his colleagues got stuck. Um, and looked around and, and watched people drinking Coke. And then if you think back to some of the earlier episodes, SCMP had this client called London Fog that made raincoats. So again, you know, really clever little connections, I think. Maybe I just read too much into it. Maybe, maybe not. You know, Matt Weiner's the guy who does his research and the writers really did their research on this. So it, uh, I, I just think this is the end for me, is the best drama on television and makes me even even more proud and happy to be a part of it. Well, that conversation that Don had with Peggy, that that did mean that it, it left the door open for him to go back to advertising and to go back to McCann's in particular. Because, you know... I, th- I think people did, did he stay on the hilltop did he you know did he become a you know a yoga teacher or you know did he take his money and become a racing driver in utah um or anything like that but i think it's fairly clear that the implication was that you know he went back and made that commercial absolutely um, i don't know whether he would be i don't know capable almost of creating it um i don't know whether or not you know I suppose it's inside McCann's and I know a little bit about how these things happen now. You know, you've got, you know, a, he wouldn't just be the one in the small companies in, um, in small agencies like SCMP. He could really put his mark on the work because, you know, apart from Lou, there wasn't, or, or Ted Shaw, there wasn't really anybody else that he had to deal with in terms of creative. But inside a massive machine like McCann, even if he was the creative director on that account, there would be, you know, a ton of other people that would be, uh, working on that particular project. And I don't know, I don't know whether Don was a, it was ever a team player. Yeah, well we, we see his exit, you know, when all those gentlemen are sitting at McCann and it's it's a huge table and he just gets up and walks out. He obviously doesn't want to be a part of that. But after if you think about it, Don Draper comes back after being gone for 3 weeks a month and he's back and he has this idea, I think he's going to draw focus. I think he's going to go back and explain why he left and how he works and why this commercial is going to work. So I think the future of Don Draper is pretty bright creatively. Well, I hope he went back because he left $2 million on the table. That's it. And he has to raise his kids. He's got to send them to college. I have to say I like too, though, the great thing about television like this or film or theater art is that it it doesn't have to we don't have to know for sure i mean maybe matthew weiner does and he absolutely if he wanted to talk about it would tell us exactly what it means or what it is but i've worked with folks who just as often say i don't know it's it's supposed to be up to you to fill it in this is not you know history this is this is art and everybody's gonna take it a little bit differently I watched a lot of movies in the 70s, often with ambiguous endings, and I really like that. So if if someone out there is going to look at Mad Men and say, no, I think Don stayed there. He maybe gave Peggy the idea, but he went off to race cars. Whatever. Once you do something, whether you're an artist, a painter, television writer, you make a movie, once you put it out there, it really doesn't belong to you anymore. It's for the audience. And that's just been my uh, philosophy about art. That once it's done, then it's the viewer or the listener that kind of makes up his own mind, whether it's a song or a a painting or a a television show. Well, 
I don't think that Matthew Weiner would ever do any kind of spin-offs or sequels to this. I think, you know, it's his work and it's done now for this particular set of stories. But it did make me think about spin-off possibilities. I mean, I'd love to see what happened to Lou in Tokyo. It would be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I tried to talk the people in AMC into Tokyo Lou. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> well, he could. I'd love to see the producers of, of this pick up with uh, Reagan's Morning in America presidential campaign commercial and a different set of characters, perhaps a whole different show, but just pick up at that point in history and keep going with uh, kind of the broader strokes story. Where do you stand on spin-offs in general? I mean, we've seen some good ones and we've seen some bad ones. I am never going to mention in polite company Joey the spin-off from Friends. Not ever. Nobody <laughs> needs to know about that. It's never going to get brought up again. I don't even think they do reruns. But did you watch Breaking Bad, Alan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, big fan of Breaking Bad. And I love uh, Better Call Saul. That's what I was going to ask because that's a, that's a spin-off done well. It's a prequel, though, so it's really interesting. I don't think uh, Mad Men, uh, it's done, and I, I, I can't see any spinoff, although it'd be fun, but uh, I think it's better left that way. Um, but, you know, back in the 70s in, in, here in America, we had spinoffs from Archie Bunker. We had Maud, uh, Rhoda from Merrily Mer Tyler Moore. So I think it works more in a comedy vein. But Saul, better call Saul, it's, it's shot little differently they really take their time i think bob odenkirk does a fantastic job and uh i'm just looking forward to the uh the, the next season i want to see you in it uh i'll i'll do my best <laughs> you could be yeah you could definitely be um one of saul goodman's clients that would be hilarious from your lips to god's ear and god being vince gilligan <laughs> <laughs> well, who, of course, I carry a lot of sway with. In <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> yes, we're like that. I suppose we should wrap this up. Um, I, I just, I can't believe that it's it's quite over. What are we going to talk about on podcast now, Jen? Because it's going to be back to web design, and that's just so boring. Yeah, we're going to talk about layouts of CSS pages. <laughs> no, we can't do this. We need to carry on talking about this for some considerable months to come, I'm sure, when we're not talking about Planet of the Apes. Andy, I think it's over. I think you've got to accept it. The show's over. I mean, you might have another podcast if you get another one of the actors on, and I hope you do. Uh, but uh, I think you need to move on. That's been the story of my life. <laughs> what are you appearing next in? Um, I got uh, two projects coming out, and I, uh, I can't talk about either one. Uh, because uh, I think Matthew Weiner set a precedent about non-disclosure that really works. And today with the internet and all the information we have, stuff gets out. So I've been asked by uh, the last two projects I've done, one I just recently finished, not to talk about it. But uh, if you want to talk about it when they come out, I'd be happy to. Nobody's listening to this show. You can tell us. <laughs> There's nobody on no, the No, it's a good – this is a good teaser. So people should just <laughs> – Keep an eye out for Alan Havey. Put a Google alert perhaps on your name so that the moment that these, the news of these new projects comes out, we'll know exactly what you're talking about. And are uh, you doing mainly acting now? Are you still doing stand-up? Oh, still doing stand-up. Uh, and uh, 
but going out and auditioning, uh, like I said, I got two or three acting projects already in the can. Uh, but uh, uh, stand up to me, I was a theater major, you know, uh, coming from Florida State when I moved to New York to be an actor. My goal was to get on Broadway, and I think I've done everything but Broadway. And I got into stand up, and it was so satisfying, and still is, that uh, I could just, you know, if I never get another acting job, I'd be very disappointed, but I'll always have stand up. Well, next time I'm in Santa Monica, I shall buy you a frothy coffee, and I'd love it if you could show me Scout's Honor. Uh, it's locked in a vault. I'll get it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you so, so much for taking the time to, to talk to me today. Before we finish, I also would like to thank our good friend Scott Gruber for helping to uh, put all of this together. So thank you, Scott. Scott's right here. He did a great job. So where's the best place for people to follow you, Alan? Because I see you're on Twitter, at Alan Havey, but you haven't tweeted for 1,722 days. Yeah, well, Judd Apatow is an old friend of mine, and he wanted to get me uh, Twitter followers, but I don't do Twitter. I'm on Facebook. You can go to alanhavey.com. You can find out my schedule there. You can always contact me through that. And uh, Twitter, to me, just too much. I don't want people following me. I don't want to be looking down on my gizmo every eight seconds if I'm following anyone. So I think the Twitter account may be one day, but it's basically Facebook and alanhavey.com. Well, I did find another Twitter account, at Mickey Shamrock. Is that you? Yeah, that's me too. I just wanted to throw people off. There's a Lou Avery Twitter account, and I don't know who runs that, but it's not me. My cat has a Twitter account, and it took me six months to know who it was. <laughs> if, if people want to follow at Malarkey's underscore cat. Um, and yeah, it, it took me six months to figure out that it was my friend Dan that was running this Twitter account, because the cat was tweeting stuff about me that only the cat would know. It's like, <laughs> he's playing David Bowie again. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How is this happening? Anyway. So people can follow you, Jen, your Jen Simmons on Twitter. Yes, Jen Simmons. Or they can uh, check out the podcast that I do, the webahead.net, a podcast about web technology and the future of the web. That was a really smooth plug. I have to say, <laughs> that was a professional level plug. And I'll be, I'll be at the Comedy Cellar uh, June uh, 11th through the uh, 13th in New York. If you want to come down, Jen, say hello. I should. What was that date again? Because I'm just pulling up my calendar. June 11th through the 13th at the Comedy Cellar in New York City. Oh, my God. I am going to be in New York from the 13th. We'll hang out. I would love that. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, People can follow me at Malarkey on Twitter or to ask questions or suggest topics or to comment on this show and others. You can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz or bz for my American listeners. See how I localize there? Or you can email me. He has at unfinished.bz. 